0: We end our series in the book of Proverbs today by considering the poem that closes out this great book. Frankly, this poem presents a view of womanhood that we will find very countercultural. It hasn't been for very long, but it is certainly now a countercultural perspective. The enlightened orthodoxy of Western culture finds this poem. Demeaning to women. It's quaint in their view. It's something perhaps worthy of consideration as an ancient text, but certainly not as something that we would consider today as valid for us as people who have been enlightened through the evolution of society. From everything that we see of our world, particularly we might think of the media. What images do we see there of women in particular, of state funded education? When we look at these sources that sort of speak for our culture, we realize that women are valued primarily for physical beauty. And then for their willingness to compete with men in the public square. That's where we put our hope as a culture. What we value. This emphasis deceives many Christian women I think it also confuses many Christian men as we see a picture out there that is pretty consistent in our world and perhaps most confused are unmarried men. The poem that closes out the book of Proverbs seeks to equip such men with the wisdom of God with his counsel concerning the kind of woman that pleases the Lord. We find here that there is an orientation in her life which synchronizes with God's creative design. And we could read into Proverbs 31, verse 10 and following, the creative account in Genesis. We can see how the two link together very distinctly. And this theme of the ideal woman that we find here in Proverbs 31 is a theme of vital importance to each one of us. To married women... The application is quite obvious. This is the portrait of the woman who fears God and is worthy of his emulation. Certainly, we want to take this to heart and consider. For unmarried women, God is talking directly to unmarried men about what to value in a wife. I mean, that's one conversation you really want to overhear and listen in on very carefully, isn't it? Women who are widowed. Divorced. We'll never marry. This is a portrait of a woman who pleases God. Now in this context, she is obviously a married woman. And though marriage may not be in your future, nonetheless, her character is there to emulate, to perceive. To emulate out of love for the bridegroom of the church. For married men, this is not an opportunity for us to sit back with arms folded and to judge our wives. And don't get out a sheet of paper and be scoring as we go through Proverbs 31, 10 and following. Uh, she could uh, do the same for you and it wouldn't go any better. Uh, but that's not what this is here for, Obviously but it's rather to learn what pleases God that we might consider our own role in encouraging this orientation in our wives. Where do we welcome it? Where do we encourage it? And where does our life parallel what is here? How are we training our daughters to think about what really matters? For unmarried men, well, put your name at the front. God's talking directly to you. So for every one of us in whatever sphere and this is how the proverbs work the many proverbs don't apply to us directly but we are to understand them as proverbial and to work them out within our own situation knowing that all scripture is profitable for us. How can we then identify the ideal woman? If you've not made your way to Proverbs 31, I encourage you to do that if you have your Bible with you, chapter 10 or verse 10 of chapter 31. How do we identify the ideal woman? What does she look like? How does she live her life? With all that the world presents to us as the idealized woman, they really have utterly no answer to this. There's a lot of different answers that are out there. People might be willing to weigh in on it, but there's really no set idea. God in His mercy to us counsels His people with wisdom. He doesn't leave us guessing. But he lays out here a beautiful picture in this poem that presents the portrait of the ideal humanity as seen in the life of a woman. God Himself identifies here in verse 10 as the excellent wife. Just a couple of preliminary considerations. This is an acrostic poem. Every verse starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so for that reason, we'll take, we will take—we must, ins- really to be honest with the text, to take a verse at a time very literally here through this poem. This aided memorization, I think it also indicates the importance of the poem. It's very carefully worked out. It is secondly a heroic poem. Let me flesh that out just briefly. But the excellent wife, that word excellent is almost impossible to translate into English. The word is used so widely in the Old Testament that we really struggle to find a word. But it is commonly used in military contexts. And there it is often translated valor. We could say the wife of valor, the champion wife. That idea. The poem is notably heavy indeed with terms typically found in military context. It's a little counterintuitive to us as we work through these Hebrew nouns. Hebrew scholars then conclude that in vocabulary as well as in form, this passage is to be classified as heroic poetry. The excellent wife is afforded the praise and the status reserved for the warriors of Israel. Now that may not mean a lot to us in our setting, but maybe one way we could work to understand is take all of the claim that our culture pours into rock stars, professional athletes, movie stars, all of that status, that all went to the warriors of Israel. They were highly esteemed and there was heroic poetry that was written think of david's poem to saul and jonathan in their death that's heroic poetry lifting high the warriors of israel she is presented here as a warrior of israel as a woman of valor in many senses will bring some of this out as a lioness in this world the excellent wife is afforded this kind of praise far from demeaning women as feminists charge this poem affords heroic status to a certain kind of woman her portrait not only informs but it stands as an example of how one lives to the glory of god from a feminine perspective here let me just make one more point and that's it is certainly an idealized picture there's no mention of sin there's no mention of weakness Not intended here to produce then depression on our parts and to force us to just simply consider where we fall short, but I think it's to see in her a reflection of the truest form of humanity ultimately displayed in the life of Jesus Christ. Here is the ideal woman. We will not match up to her in many, many respects, but God in His mercy sets here an example for us to see, and to appreciate. In the first place, the poem reveals that the excellent wife is of exquisite benefit to her husband. Verse 10, An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. We see she's of utmost value to him. To paraphrase Wardlaw, better to spend all your wealth in the acquisition of a godly wife than to become rich in the acquisition of a bad one. God Himself, recognizes her exquisite, rare value. She does her husband no harm. Her husband sees this value, and so should we. Secondly, he has full confidence in her, verse 11. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. You know, when you covenant in marriage to join soul and body with a mate that renders you very vulnerable love willingly exposes our hearts to potential harm and in many respects there's no place where harm is realized more than in the marriage relationship but the husband of the excellent wife finds her to be a rock that he can fully trust Now obviously we need to work out in the other direction. There's no one that can harm a woman more than a husband. And she needs to find full and absolute trust and confidence in Him. But understanding the context here, He trusts in her. He has full confidence in her. He knows her to be a woman of fidelity. She is steadfastly loyal to Him, dependable, reliable, trustworthy, driven by selfless love. And thirdly, she profits him in every way, 11b. He will have no lack of gain. Gain, the Hebrew word commonly used for plunder or the spoils of war. There again, that military theme. She is an enterprising woman whose endeavors in life enrich him. They do not drain him. They do not impoverish him. She's a source of benefit to him, never a detriment. As a husband, it is his calling to protect and provide for his wife, but in a real sense, here she provides for him. She gains the right kind of plunder for her home. She's of utmost value to him. He has full confidence in her. She profits him in every way. And number four, she is wholly reliable and, and, and she is a wholly reliable, enduring source of good to him. Verse 12. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. That is, there's nothing in her character, nothing she says, nothing she does that harms him. She's a source of unending good to her husband. Perhaps no one on earth can do more harm to a husband than a wife and vice versa. And we need to realize this. And unmarried men, you particularly need to realize this. Gaining a wife, gene- generically stated, is a good thing. I said genetically stated. I guess that's a good thing that way too, perhaps. But uh, generically stated is a good thing, but it can be a bad thing. It can be a source of great pain. You need to know that. That's what the father is saying here. And I know it can become uncomfortable in the real world outside of the father and son talking. But he sits down with his son and says, I know there's a drive in you that desperately wants a woman and wants to be married, but you need to recognize she can be a source of great trial." But the excellent wife is one who does him good all the days of her life. She is a source of unending goodness. Don't get yourself hooked by physical attraction to a woman who does not have good in her heart. But if you find a woman who is good, she will do you good. She will be a source of unending joy in your life. She is a woman of exquisite benefit to her husband. And all, of these, all that these verses uh, address here, verses 10 through 12, is how she relates to him and how she is a source of good and blessing to him. So she is of exquisite benefit to her husband. Secondly, the excellent wife is a woman of tireless industry. Verse 13, she seeks wool and flax and works willingly with her hands. The wool and flax, the wool of sheep, the fibers of the sun-dried flax plant were used to make thread that was used to make clothes and home furnishings. Obviously a very different world. But having secured these materials, she works with, willingly with her hands. The Hebrews indicate she takes delight and pleasure in working with her hands. She rejoices to tackle her work. Verse 14, she is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. The owners of merchant ships went to great lengths to skillfully plan and courageously execute the acquisition, the securing of valuable goods. She's like that. She goes out into this world and she secures such valuable goods. This is not a commendation of extravagance. There's no virtue in going to great lengths to purchase at a higher price what one might be able to attain closer to home and less expensively. The point is that she's diligent, she's wise, she's innovative in securing food for her family. Verse 15, she rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. Rising early in the morning to provide food for her household means she puts their care ahead of her own comfort. She manages a staff of maidservants, but she works as hard as they do, making sure that they are properly supplied to fulfill their work. She doesn't sit back and simply ask them to serve her, but through their efforts, she seeks to do more and accomplish more and provides for them. She provides food. Literally, again, here it's, it's different than what we read, but it's the word pray. She's pictured like a lioness who with courage and prowess secures what her family needs. She profits him. She profits them as she gives herself to this work. Verse 16, she considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. So working diligently with her hands, she produces merchandise to sell and with the proceeds bides a field where she raises grapes for her family, and perhaps also for resale. She's innovative, she's entrepreneurial, she's courageous. She initiates a business venture in the community, and she manages that venture. This is not a woman who's cowering in the corner at home, nor is she a woman who's simply lazily sitting around doing nothing while others serve her. She's out in the world working diligently, willingly, skillfully. Verse 17, she dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. The Hebrew is that she girds her loins. Again, a warrior imagery. Like a warrior who tucks his robe into his belt to ready himself for physical action, she readies herself for work. She is energetic and diligent, not pawning off her work onto others or letting things slip due to laziness, but she has a strong arm, figuratively speaking, and perhaps even literally. Verse 18, she perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. There's an energy that's there in what God has given her to do and in the work that she accomplishes. She finds that she gets excited about profiting others. From the things that she makes. And so at times she just doesn't get to bed very early to get things done as she's driven by that work and energized by it. Verse 19, she puts her hand to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. These were tools used in that day to make thread out of flax and wool. So she's often found making thread so she can provide clothes and furnishings for her family. Again, our day very different. Uh, the only people that make clothing at home today are people who are doing it as a hobby. It takes way too much time and way more money to live that way and to supply clothing that way, unless you're going to make one robe and wear it every day or something like that, but it's it's not our world. But you see her orientation to make sure that she's caring for the details of the family, and her diligent efforts are not selflessly reserved for them either, are they? Verse 20, She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. This industrious woman is also a woman of compassion for the needy who are outside of her home. God has generally equipped women with heightened sensitivities toward those who are in trial. And it's a beautiful thing to watch a woman of moral skill display compassion. On the other hand, she doesn't neglect her family by any means. Verse 21, we've seen this already, but she's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. In a world without electricity, the cold of winter could be particularly dangerous. But the excellent wife has no fear of that. She's prepared ahead of time for this day. She has diligently and willingly labored with her hands to make sure that her family is clothed warmly. The word scarlet, speaking of quality wool. Caring for them in that way. Verse 22, she makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Here she goes beyond just the necessities. Bed coverings. One of the more civilizing effects women can have on men is in their efforts to beautify and soften the home environment. And husbands, I, you know, to understand the appeal of cluttering life up with floofy stuff is sometimes hard for us to really deal with and figure out. But whether we understand it or not, such touches warm a home and they remind us that a woman is there. And that's beautiful. And it's good. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. That is, she dresses well. And understanding the context, that is not, she is wealthy and spends an inordinate amount of time at the shopping mall. It is what? What does it mean contextually? She works hard. She's making her own clothes, and she is careful to make sure that she looks good in them. She gives effort that way. Verse 23 may seem a little bit out of context within the flow of the thought for us, but remembering it's an acrostic poem, and knowing that Hebrews weren't quite so worried about staying everything neatly in order. It interjects here, Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders, of the land, the elders of the local governing authorities, uh, they met at the main gates of an ancient city. Her rare qualities as a wife influence how people view her husband. And there's a, a real test of one's character and one's influence upon a community. How do people look at your mate because of who you are? When people see this man, they know he's attached with that woman. I respect him because i so respect her so it's quite a commendation verse 24 she makes linen garments and sells them we're back to her industry her tireless efforts she sells them she delivers sashes to the merchants so she makes it more than just for her family she's able to make money from her efforts She never tires of creative work. Verse 25, strength and dignity are her clothing. And she laughs at the time to come. She's clothing everyone else, so she's clothed as well. We've seen in fine linen and purple. But now we see that she's clothed with strength and dignity. She laughs at the time to come. Strength here, again, not a weak woman. And dignity, she's not frivolous, flighty, small-minded, immature, or unpolished. But one rather who laughs at the time to come. What does that mean? As a warrior laughs at an inferior opponent who only pretends to intimidate him, she likewise has no fear of future calamity. She's not afraid of the winter to come. She's not afraid of provisions for her household. She's ahead of the game. She's ready. So in that sense of the word, she can laugh at the threats that might come from a chaotic world. Remember, this is the idealized woman. There's all kinds of threats that come from chaos that we don't overcome, but she's prepared is the point. Verse 26, She opens her mouth with wisdom and teaching, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Wisdom, this moral skill from God, which we've been studying, and kindness, the Hebrew word has said or covenant love, including the idea of kindness. Her words, in other words, are rich with wisdom, with kindness, as she speaks with others. Verse 27, she looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. I think if you're tracking to this point, you realize that brings this emphasis of her industry to a fitting summary. The summary statement. She looks well to the ways of her household. That's what's been said here for a number of verses now. She is oriented toward the welfare of her family. She pays diligent attention to their daily needs. She exerts high levels of comfort-sacrificing energy to address every issue that pertains to their profit. The key is that her life is oriented toward them. And in that, she does not feel stifled, but rather she finds her purpose in life and a joy that drives her to continue to serve God. So she's oriented toward her family's welfare. Secondly, as we've seen, she's a hard worker. 27b, she does not eat the bread of idleness. That's so clear. There's not a lazy bone in her body. She works diligently, tirelessly, selflessly in the interest of her family. This is just who she is. There are women, uh, you maybe have met some. I know that I have who think that the excellent wife is the woman who reads the bible the most the woman who spends the most time in prayer the woman who is most at church and by no means would we want to discourage participation in some events in such events but in popular thought many times the zenith of christian devotion is supposedly reached when one is cloistered away in a monastery-type setting, a convent, a retreat center, a church building, or a closet at home. That's where real Christianity is worked out. The subtle assumption is that Christianity constitutes at its deepest level a pursuit of mystical experiences, or at least intellectual stimulation. But the portrait of the excellent wife reminds us that the life to which Jesus calls us is a bloody, sweaty, grimy, earthy affair, isn't it? Our highest calling is to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, to love him with all of our hearts as he transforms us by his word and spirit. Warm spiritual experiences and satisfying intellectual endeavors will certainly accompany such worship, but... Authentic spirituality entails living a transformed life in a real world. Christian devotion rolls up its sleeves. Yes, it reads the Scriptures and meditates upon them. It seeks God in prayer. It joins with His people in worship. And it rejoices to do so, but Christian devotion also rolls up its sleeves and actively obeys God in the sweatshop of human affairs. It is an earthy spirituality that labors with its gaze fixed on the promise of a renewed universe. Inhabited by saints and resurrected bodies laboring for the glory of Christ, made flesh for our redemption. And here we find a radiant picture of ideal humanity then from a feminine angle. It's a picture that points really forward ultimately to the human being, the ultimate human being, Jesus Christ, who lived His life before us in grimy, sweaty, energetic labor for the glory of God. God God-fearing women are willing to get their hands dirty. They live out their lives in the bump and shove, give and take of their communities and actively serve the needs of their families as well as those who have less and need their aid. So a woman of excellence is a woman who gets dirty in active endeavor to subdue the earth to the glory of God. She joins with her husband that is assumed here in that endeavor. She doing her unique work fulfilling her calling as he at the city gate fulfills his. And so, young women particularly, we should consider God made us to work. You were made by God to work, and should, be, should he grant you a husband someday, the focus will be not for a man to come into your life to rescue you, or to simply provide companionship, but for a man to come into your life that you can link arms with him to subdue the earth to the glory of God. Finding a husband, young women, is part of the process of working as we were created to work. And young men seeking a wife, a wife that is not energetic in diligent work, Is one that's going to be very difficult to link arms with in the subduing of this earth. There's great joy as we work together as husband and wife on common projects for the glory of God. We've got to be workers. That can be overdone, that can be overvalued. But there's no couple that is fulfilling the calling of God and synchronizing their life with Him who is not involved in cooperative effort to subdue the earth. We see that here. We'd love to meet this woman. I'd love to watch her for a while. I'd love to see how she relates to her husband and how the community praises him because of her. So much of this text is given to her industry to her never-ceasing effort. And as the poem then comes to close in these last verses, we see first that she is a woman of exquisite value to her husband, and then that she's a woman of untiring industry, but then finally the excellent wife is worthy of great praise. She's praised by her family in verse 28, and it's what we would expect. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. They say many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. She secures the praise of the people who know her best. Chew on that for a while. Her children and her husband rise up depicting an attitude of respect and honor. And together they extol her excellence because they witness firsthand the fruit of her character, the beauty of her wisdom in in every day of their lives. She's a source of unending good to them. Yes, she has defects. She is a sinner. This is an idealized poem, but that's not the point of the poem. When her husband pauses to consider the course of her life, when her children leave the home and pause to remember her, their mouths fill with a symphony of praise. They stand to their feet, And they bless her and praise her as they consider how profoundly she has benefited their lives. They say, you are the world's best mom. You are the world's best wife. It's hyperbole. It's not the truth. But they don't really care about the truth. She is, in their view, right then. She's praised for her godliness. Praised by her family, praised for her godliness. Verse 30, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Again, the media in our world is rife with images of beautiful bodies because that is what our sensual culture values and wants. There's nothing wrong with external beauty. But here the counsel is clearly in another direction and that is to fear God. That is what matters most. As Peter writes in chapter 3 of his first epistle, Do not let your adorning be external, he says to the women, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing. Not that these things are evil, but don't find them as they are not the source of who you are but let your adorning your beauty be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is in God's sight very precious. And so for young men who are being schooled by the culture in which we live, we need to think counterculturally. We need to think clearly here from God's wisdom, and that is not and that is to not over prioritize physical attraction, and charm. There's women that can hook us with their looks, and they can hook us with their charm, but inside, there's not much there. And it's going to be a source of unending discouragement. We need to prioritize inner beauty, first because God does, and secondly, a woman's physical beauty can pretty quickly disgust you if that beauty is not supported by the inner beauty of a heart that fears the Lord. So learn to think past just the physical and just what's out there in front of you and look deeper. And parents, what are we teaching our daughters, church, what are we teaching our young people to value, to see as most important? How are we teaching them these things? She's praised by her family, her works, or her, her godliness is praised, and then thirdly, she's praised by her works. Verse 31, give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. The fruit of her hands, described primarily in verses 13 to 27, she's a skillful and diligent, talented and enterprising woman and her whole community can perceive her worth. Not only will her family praise her, but she should be praised in the gates, where the leaders of the community gather and the significant business of the village is conducted. She's known there. They honor themselves, says one author, who seek to praise the works of such a woman. They honor themselves who seek to praise the works of such a woman. Well, who is she? What does she look like? Why does the Spirit of God Put this picture before us. What are we to consider here? What are we to see? Why is this of value to us in our sanctification and growth as believers? I think we would be utterly blinded were we not to see that the fundamental orientation of this woman is to her family. We consider first of all her husband, then. In her endeavors, so many of them are poured out for her family, for her household. We probably need to think here a little larger than just what we think of as family, but for a grander household that is hers, she gives herself. And in the end, the praise comes from her children and her husband and the works that she does. She is fundamentally oriented to her family. And this so beautifully synchronizes with God's creative design. As we look at the account of creation in Genesis, we are made to work and she is brought to the side of her husband as a helper, as a completer, as he subdues the earth for God's glory and for the joy of humanity. We see her in this endeavor here fulfilling that very creative design. Her life is synchronized with what God has designed, and He smiles. And so should we. Seeing the profile of this wife in light of the entire Bible, we realize that her profile is prophetically patterned after the perfections of Jesus Christ. On this side of the cross, she is the kind of woman whose conformity to Jesus emanates from her morally skillful pattern of life. She's rooted in Him. She identifies with Him in union with Christ. She finds her hope. Her hope in this day can only be centered in the transforming power of the Gospel. So women who walk in union with Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, can live out a transformed life, showing and evidencing the way that a woman lives who fears God. It is very natural for us to live a life that is self-oriented. I'm going to do what I want to do. I want to accomplish certain things. This is how I want to live my life. This is where I find my pleasure. And so many women walking around in this world are completely lacking of a moral center. There's no compass. They're not driven by the fear of God. And as this book started, it is the fear of God that is the beginning of wisdom. And so when a woman serves only herself, there's no compass. There's no center. There's no purpose. But this is a woman who fears God. And in the fear of God, she serves others and in that her husband trusts in her. Her industry blesses others and she is a source even in the text of God's Word, a source of praise or an object of praise. So to our women, all, whatever station in life you now inhabit, everyone must ask, Do I want this? If I was to write about the excellent wife, what would I write? What would I say, and how would it differ from this text? I think it's something we need to really carefully consider, because this is the word of the Lord, and this is how he said it, and this is the picture that he's presented before us. Do I want it? I think we need to come to honest assessment. Say, well, it's just not me. Yeah, right? There's nobody here that even knows what a distaff is. Okay, It isn't us in direct application. We're not going to do all the things that this woman does, but there's a character here. There's, there's an orientation here. Is that you? I think there's no question that this text could point us to repentance as women. And to commit ourselves to pursue a life of faithfulness to God as we root ourselves in the self-sacrificing industry and orientation of Jesus Christ in union with Him, serving His purposes as a woman. And men, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God and that will evidence itself in part by the kind of women that we value. What do we most respect? What most attracts us? My natural inclination to merely physical beauty is an evidence of where my heart is. And my resistance to genuinely godly women is perhaps again an evidence of sin that calls for repentance. Maybe I talked to a few unmarried men here who might be thinking in your mind, where on earth is this woman? I'd like a woman like that. Or even some married men saying, yeah, I wish my woman was anywhere close to that picture. But before we rush out of church today with our chests out, feeling pretty good about where we are and bemoaning the dearth of such godly women, do you know a woman like this seeing you, might run away. Think about it. Who are you as a young man seeking a wife? Who are you becoming as a young man? You don't see a lot of women like this, and there aren't a lot of men that could handle her. So let's also take to heart who we are. And consider very carefully what's coming out of my life. Not only what do I value in a godly woman, but what would a godly woman see in me? It's really easy to want something that we don't at all deserve. a couple more thoughts, but thinking on this text, I was led in study, in meditation, to thank God for this church. And to thank God that though this woman isn't on the earth, really, that there are many women in this assembly who really are striving for this model, who appreciate it, who are bending their lives to approximate it. I'm so thankful for the ceaseless energy of those working to subdue the earth to the glory of God, to those who have oriented their lives toward their husbands and toward their children and who love them with all of their heart, who give themselves away to their families to make them better and who long to be a source of never-ending good. There's not one woman here who can say that. We're all a source of bad at times. But through repentance and through seeking to align our lives with God's call upon our life, I'm thankful. And I just want for the women of this church to know it's a privilege to walk in fellowship with you and to see the noble character and the faithfulness to the Lord that God displays. Not all are there, and there's need for growth for every one. But we can thank God for what He's producing and what He is doing by His Spirit as we seek to conform to authentic humanity in union with Christ. Some of us will have the privilege to gather now uh, in in a few moments in smaller groups. And I would encourage you to work this out. What does this authentic humanity look like in men, in women? How does our world look at these ideas and how do we put it into play? And my hope then is what we see as goodness in our church and goodness in our lives will be encouraged and stimulated. And where we see weakness and need for repentance, that that work will be done today as we work with each other to say, here's how this has worked out. And stimulate and encourage each other in our discussion. Let's bow before the Lord and seek His help to that end. Father, whether in small groups here this afternoon, this evening, or just as we go home and head out on our own, every one of us will need to respond to this passage of Scripture. Indeed, to this book of Proverbs as we've considered it together as a church. And I pray that you will work uniquely in and through us to accomplish your purposes, I pray that you change and strengthen us by your word and by the conviction of the Spirit. And I pray, may pray for some here today, I anticipate that I do, who are separated from Christ. They have not been born again. And they do not have eyes to see the wonder of your word and your counsel. I pray that you draw them to see their sin and that they are not authentically human until they have rooted themselves in the work of Jesus crucified and risen. I pray that you draw them to that knowledge today that they would not go from here striving to put this into practice as such. But they'd they'd go from here saying, I need God. And I pray that they'd seek you i pray that we all would be seeking you for we need you and i ask that the likeness of jesus christ would be evidenced in our lives as we strive by your grace to be faithful authentic human beings in the name of christ we pray amen